dance group. Let us pray. Lord God, by your grace, you have given us another day in your kingdom, another day to celebrate life, another day to seek and see your work through the Holy Spirit in Zev and John and in each person in each chair in this room. Lord, we ask your blessing upon our time together this day. And we pray that as we learn more about Peter, we may also learn that, that we can become rocks in your continued blessing upon your great gift of humanity. Lord, we pray for those who are hurting around the world. We pray that somehow, some way, we might find a way to peace, that all of God's creation may come to know and love you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Judge. Come on in. You're not late. Everything's cool. Good morning. We're here. We're ready to study. Yes? Uh, yeah. Yes. Don't be thinking about the Browns and all that right now. Here, right here. We're here now. All right. I'm very excited about today. Um, when I say Peter's journey, stage three, obviously we are, because we have an eight-week course, we're reducing the corpus of Peter's life down into stages, okay? You're not late. So understand this is a human schema. But today we're going to look at an event in Peter's life that just is beyond almost words. And uh, Dr. Dan is going to talk about the place where this happened, which is Caesarea Philippi. And we were there in February and we had a, a great time. And Dan, you uh, walked around in a uh, state of transformed wonder for two weeks, but it seemed to me like at Caesarea Philippi, you, something happened there for you. So I'm excited to, for you to hear his time there. Uh, the, so the event that we're gonna talk about in Peter's life today happened in this place. Then uh, our famous Rev Zev Rosenberg is going to take us to that place uh, Caesarea Philippi and explain to us what happened to Jesus, what happened to Peter, and then at the end I'm going to try to take us over to 2 Peter 1 and show us what the meaning of this event that is recorded in the scriptures has for each one of us today. So this isn't just history, it's, uh, a, it's a, an event that has transcultural and trans-temporal and significance right into our day and life today. So before we start, let's review. So the very first thing that we learned about Peter in John 1 was what? It was the first thing. He changed his name. And he changed his name from Simon 
to uh, either Aramaic, Cephas, uh, Greek, Petros. And then, of course, Zev taught us what about that significance when he called him, okay, your name is now going to be called Petros, Rocky, that means what in the Bible when you do that, when somebody does that? It speaks to his, his character and his, what God's called him to be. So now he's met Jesus and he's got a new call and a new definition of who Jesus wants him to be. He's going to be the rock. Okay, beautiful. And then, uh, what did we learn last week? That was stage two. It happened at where? The Sea of Galilee. It happened not well after, but some time after uh, he had just met Oh, yes, the fish. Right, right, right. So understand what Jesus is doing here. He's so nice. I mean, we didn't even talk about this stuff. You could go on and on about these stories. But why did he go on Peter's boat in the first place? Yeah, because they were pre- they were going to knock him into the lake. So in Danny, Danny and I sat down there at the, at the Sea of Galilee, right? And you could do it. There's all these rocks and everything. So Jesus is getting pushed back into the water. So he, being a smart guy, he said, I know this guy, Simon. He hops in his boat. What did he actually do when he gave those fish back to Simon? In effect, in a nice way, what did he do? He said, I took your time. He paid for his rent. He gave him, <laughs> he rented his boat. <laughs> what a nice guy. You're never going to outgive Jesus. And then when the master sees the boat, the nets, everything sinking, going crazy, the guys are yelling, and what's his reaction? This, is, this was the real point. I'm going to make you fish or something. Well, no, no, that's what Jesus said after Peter said this classic line. He, he actually says, he, goes down, he falls down on his knees in front of Jesus in the boat. And he says, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. And it's like the master just said, yeah, I, I knew that. I knew that but now what do you remember Zeb teaching on this Zogreo look at this Zoe the master said to Peter you're now going to catch people, what? Alive. So he, as it were, got a new job. He used to catch fish alive, and now as the rock, he's going to catch humans alive. He gets a new job. Now, in commemoration of this, (laughs) here are some stones. I'd like you to take one, if you would like to, to help you remember that you are what? You are a living stone in this vast temple that God is building that we studied, that Peter is instrumental in building. Now, uh, these cards are blank. Why is that? If anyone has a question. Oh, I know. (laughs) (laughs) What I'm asking is, why are they blank? Because we want to answer questions. We don't want to just sit up here and talk. So, (laughs) I would never say that. So now, let's start. Uh, unless anybody has any questions you want to ask verbally, since no one wrote one down. No? Seriously? 
Okay. Dan, come and tell us what you learned, what you experienced at Caesarea Philippi. And we want to get these lights down just a tad, right? This is, uh, this is an awesome place. Uh, I was in some beautiful synagogues and churches and beautiful settings and towns, but this setting was one or two of the most humbling places I'd ever stood. And uh, I, think you'll, I, hope, I hope you capture that same feeling after I explain a little bit about this. In Matthew, right, in Matthew 15, right before uh, the events that we're going to study or are studying, um, Jesus has the disciples uh, down by the Sea of Galilee. Um, you know, if we use that as a clock dial, about 9 o'clock is, is, is where he was. Um, they had just uh, fed the 5,000. Jesus had just taught the dis- disciples uh, in, uh, are about the, the uh, teachings of the Sadducees and Pharisees being like yeast. So, so there was, and, and by the way, Nazareth is down about, oh, what, five, six o'clock, down even on the other side. Um, so that was Jesus' kind of base at the time. And then we jump ahead to Matthew 16, and all of a sudden, uh, uh, we're up north uh, about 30 miles. Now, once you see Israel, you understand that a 30-mile walk in the desert over the rocks and terrain that are there, which I don't know that there's ever, I didn't see a flat spot hardly. Uh, That is a heck of a a journey. There's a purpose that he went there. You just don't take a 30-mile walk in Israel in sandals, right? Not not the kind of technology sandals we have today anyways. So this is the setting. And um, this was actually our group. This is our guide, Bruce, and, and we're meeting. Now, again, keep in mind, we're, we're in a desert, and you see trees here. Um, you're going to ask yourself, what's going on? But this is actually kind of like a vacation spot in a way. Uh, some people describe this terrain, this area, this, this uh, Caesarea Philippi, as being lush. So this was a desirable area. For many cultures, as John mentioned, it's multicultural. A lot of people saw this, and they, and they used it as sort of an administrative area outside the city, and they established temples, synagogues, etc. in this area. This is, you know, on the, on, on the, if I were standing here, that's where we were sitting, to my left would be this view. And this is, this is really the poignant view that I, I wanted you to see. There is a huge, first of all, Caesarea is built on a rock itself. It's at the foothills of Mount Hermon. Uh, Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in the region. And it can be seen in some areas for as much as 100 miles. It can actually be seen sometimes from Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, that 30, 40 mile span. And it's snow-capped. Only, the only ski resort. So the snow obviously is what? It's a source of water. And we are at the foothills of this huge, huge mountain. And by the way, although somewhat debated, Mount Hermon is probably where the transfiguration occurred. So from Jesus' hometown, 35, he can see Mount Hermon and he's transformed there. And now he's bringing the disciples here at the foothills of where the, 
transformation was. And there is water in a desert. Does that surprise you? Trees. You can see the greenery in the middle of the picture, right? There are lush fields for a desert. This is an amazing, amazing, you know, transformation from the rest of the areas that we saw. Now, of course, in modern times, man-made, we have irrigation and stuff, and we saw lush areas, but this is natural. The other thing that's amazing is this cave. The cave of Pan. Now, Pan, if you don't know mythology, and I didn't, I had to study it. Pan was um, the god of shepherds, sheep, flocks, forests, fields. And as you can imagine with all of that, he represented a fertility. And you know Pan, you probably just don't know him by name. It's not Peter Pan. You know, you know the little goat figure with the kind of devilish smiling face and the little horns? That's Pan. And theory goes that, uh, or mythology, excuse me, goes that he was so ugly that his mother left him here. But this is considered his birthplace. The cave there is the cave dedicated to Pan. And it has a very deep grotto in it. Uh, Josephus and, and Eusebius wrote about this area. We get a lot of the historical facts. And, and I can't remember if it was Josephus, I think it was, who said that ropes that man had, they could not reach the bottom of this grotto. And the snow and water that came from the mountain was captured there. And, and this was therefore another very, very uh, important area because it is one of the sources of the Jordan River. Now, again, the Jordan River, you know, at best maybe 20 yards wide and maybe 17 feet deep at its greatest. But still, this, the Jordan is a, a huge, huge, huge uh, importance uh, in our times, the baptism being probably the best known in the Jordan. But to Israel and to Jewish uh, living, it's a huge, huge uh, undertaking. Uh, around, I think it was 363 AD, there was an earthquake. This terrain was, was uh, interrupted. And this huge, huge, huge deep grotto of water no longer was the source. The rocks rearranged themselves. And now, probably back in the left corner of that picture where this little waterfalls is, but back, the water is bubbling out of the rocks. So the water, the, the area was transformed like the water was brought out of the darkness into the light. This huge uh, wall has many little cutouts in it, and you can see it. And there's some now, since 1967 or so, this has only been an archaeological area, and they've discovered that there's about 14 different temples. There's some 15 niches uh, carved into these rocks. Five of them are in the opening of this, this uh, uh, cave of Pan, and they all have some degree of reference or scripture or inscription to recognize different gods. So this was a place of idol worshiping, no question. Again, somewhat of a close-up uh, to that site. And you can see how massive this rock of wall, or this uh, wall of rock is. Um, but you could also see how the small rocks, at least are at least configured, and the idea that we, we could be uh, living rocks in this wall, and certainly the base, the source of this water. A little more close-up. Unfortunately, it was dark, but... 
back in there, you can see some of these carved out areas where these uh, idols would be uh, displayed. Oh, the, the perfect, Pam. Pam put these pictures together for me, and I really haven't got to see them yet, so. Exactly what I'm talking about. Idols, all, a wall of idols, huge, tall, huge, huge height. And then you can see on the edge there the cave of Pan. And, and this is a artist, uh, this was a picture that was actually there, an artist's rendition of what this would have looked like, uh, perhaps. Now again, this was a very important area for many cultures, not just, the, not just um, mythology, but Roman times had it, Romans had it, Greeks had it. Uh, it turned over to the Syrians, multiple cultures, much like the church, multiple cultures. And then uh, another artist's rendition of, of uh, Herod used this for a while as kind of a vacation administrative area, uh, another mock-up of what that would look like. So again, John David mentioned it. Uh, this, is a, this is an area of multiple symbols, multiple cultures, and Jesus made a 30-mile walk from an area where he was comfortable uh, with his disciples for a purpose. Th- this didn't just happen. They, they weren't there, and he thought, well, I'm going to spring this, this, uh, this question on them. And um, David Padfield kind of summarized this in, in, in a thing I found on the Internet when I was looking over a couple things for today. Um, this is kind of the background. Who is Jesus, he says. He says, with Caesarea Philippi as a background, we have a very dramatic pic- picture. Here's a homeless, penniless Galilean carpenter, 12 ordinary men around him, the Jewish leaders were already prodding and planning to destroy him as a dangerous header. Look where Jesus is standing, in an area littered with temples of Syrian gods, beneath idols of so-called deity, Pan, carved into the cliffs, in a place where the most important river of Judaism sprang to life, and in a place where white marble splendors of homes of Caesar worship dominated the land, and compelled the eye. It's as if Jesus deliberately set himself against the background of the world's religions and all their splendor and glory and demanded to be compared with them. But who do you say I am? Thank you, Dan. That was cool. Hey, uh, do you want to waste a minute and wax on about uh, a, a term that we get from Pan's name? Okay, so he'll tell you about just a little fun thing about uh, Pan. And now he's going to tell you about the important thing is, though, what happened at that place, the vision. So, okay. Um, The worshipers of Pan were very much into ecstatic worship experiences. So can you imagine what English word do we have that would come from that style of not panacea, <laughs> not pandemonium, <coughs> not Pandora. No, you're, you're being too complicated. Not pancakes. <laughs> yeah, it was the original Shrove Tuesday pancakes. No, just kidding. Panic. Who said panic? That's it. It's the origin of our term panic. Okay. In other words, you're getting really upset. 
Okay. Now, we've already alluded to one thing that happened in that place at Caesarea Philippi when we talked about I'm crackling. When we talked about the meaning of Peter's name, what was it that happened at Caesarea Philippi that Peter said in response to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? What did Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, one thing I wanted to point out about that, especially because I think it bears on why Christ at that point reinforced his renaming of Simon as Peter Petros the Rock. It's not, you know, the words we often overlook in that sentence um, are the first two words of the sentence. It's not so much Christ the Son of the living God, it is Sue A. You are. Now, if you take that sue, which is second person in Greek, you are, and you put it in first person, what do you get? Anybody know? I am. I am. Ego eimi. Okay. In other words, it is the identification of Jesus, who is the one to whom we witness, as divine. Okay, it corresponds then to all the I am sayings in the Gospel of John. Okay, and that's why, and of course Peter must have thought, man, I'm going to the head of the class here. Okay, Jesus said, you are the rock. You're it. And then, all of a sudden, we're going to start with something where Peter goes in the blink of an eye from the head of the class to the dean's office. Okay, we're looking now at chapter 16 in Matthew, beginning in verses 21 through 23. Okay, who wants to read? Okay. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Okay. A few little things about the words. First of all, that's a pretty sharp rebuke, isn't it? Okay. In Mark's gospel, it's almost even sharper, because the word that is used for how Peter rebuked Jesus is the same word that is used to exorcise someone. And so then Jesus has to turn around, as it were, and exorcise Peter. And so what does he call him? Satan. Satan. 
Okay, why so sharp a rebuke? Why so sharp? Well, where else do we see Jesus calling someone Satan? Anybody in, you know, early, it's earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. What? What ha- was happening in the wilderness? Okay, he was being tempted and he called Satan, Satan. Let's take a look at that. Okay. And we're looking in Matthew at the third temptation. And I want to keep it in Matthew. Okay. Starting in, this is chapter 4, beginning in verse 8 through 10. Okay. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Okay. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor and all of their glory. And Satan said, these all belong to me. And I give them to whoever I will. If you'll fall down and worship me, they will all be yours. Now, this is the first time in the temptations in Matthew's version that he calls Satan, Satan. How does he recognize that this is Satan at this point? What? Because he's the God of this world. This is an important thing in understanding this temptation in the wilderness. He doesn't say, no, these kingdoms don't belong to you. He's saying, yes, they do. That says something about the world we live in. Yeah. Well, who does Satan think... Who does Satan think Jesus was? Well, well, that is an interesting thing. Does he think he's just a man, or does he really think, think or understand that Jesus is divine? Well, that's good. I don't know. I, I try not to get it too much into the mind of Satan to figure out who he thought. You know, it's like C.S. Lewis said in the screw tape letters, you know, don't get too curious about the things of the devil. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, one of the interesting and early symbols, and this is sort of apropos of last week, of uh, Christianity is a fish hook. Why would a fish hook be a symbol of Christian Christianity? What? The fisherman, but... In this case, that's not quite it. Who was caught on the fish hook? Satan. What was the bait? The humanity of Jesus. That was the bait on the hook that caught Satan. Was his humanity. As if to say, oh, he's vulnerable now. I can get him. He's vulnerable now. I can get him. That's what, it's, it's an interesting history. You know, you know we, we always think of the cross as a symbol of Christianity. What was probably a more important early symbol of Christianity? 
a fish. Why the fish? Because the Greek word for fish, ichthus, was an acronym, was taken as an acronym for Jesus Christos Theu Huios Soter. Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And my Greek amanuensis will put this up on the board. Okay. Now, he calls Satan, Satan, because Satan wants worship, and the reward is going to be what? World dominance, right? So, why does he call Peter Satan here? What has Peter told him? What has Peter said to him that evokes this reaction? Well, what did Peter say? God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You're not going to suffer and die and be betrayed and be crucified. Good God. Why? What did it mean in Peter's mind that Jesus was going to, Jesus was the Messiah? What? He would be the promised king who would make Israel top nation, wouldn't it? He was invincible, you said. Nothing like this could possibly happen to the Messiah. And at this point, Jesus says to him, you're thinking like whom? You're thinking like Satan. So we did have a question. Was he actually calling Peter the person Satan? Or was he saying, dude, you're letting Satan speak and think through you? What do you think? Was he actually calling Peter Satan? No. Okay. Just like Peter was not the rock on which he was actually going to build his church personally, Peter was not personally Satan, but he, by allowing himself to think in strictly human terms, was letting Satan speak through him. And that is, you're thinking like men. In other words, you are regarding me from a strictly human perspective. What is it Paul says? I can't remember which is the letter. We once regarded Christ after the flesh, but we regard him so no longer. Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians, thank you. The Encyclopedia Joannica. <laughs> okay. Now, the reason I want to get this is because it is important to see what we are about to talk about, which is the transfiguration in the context of this relationship with Peter. And I want to get to this very quickly. Now, the transfiguration is one of the most extraordinary, important things for me. I brought my icon of the transfiguration, and it's a marvelous picture. Uh, I'm going to pass it around, or else you can come up and see at the end of it, end of the session. And I don't want to get into all the details. So let's get to the story. And we are Matthew 17. Actually, I want to start with Matthew 16, verse 28 through 17, 8. 
1628 through 178. Who's going to read? Okay. Yes, 1628. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 17.1. After the six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, <clears throat> excuse me, if thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, whom, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Okay, we could spend an entire course of eight sessions on this vision. No question about it. But I just wanted to sort of take a look at this. First of all, the reason why I wanted you to read from 1628 through 178 is because in a way, the change of chapters breaks one story. Because one of the things that a lot of biblical scholars are saying is Jesus essentially in 1628 makes a mistake. He says, some of those who are standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And the kingdom didn't arrive until after, the, you know, it still hasn't. So therefore, Jesus was wrong. No, they were done in by a mistaken chapter switch. 1628 should probably be 17.1. Because when did some of those standing there see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? Just six days later. And that after six days, in other words, that links 17.1 to 16.28. This is the fulfillment. Now, obviously, it's not the total fulfillment. It's a partial fulfillment of that blessing. But some of those standing there, in other words, this tells you what we're about to see. This is the meaning of the vision. The Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, what had, G had P Jesus just rebuked Peter for? Seeing things from a human perspective. In other words, what was, and what was Peter rebuking Jesus about? What had Jesus predicted was going to happen? He was going to be crucified. In other words, now why does, in 1628, why does he say, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What does that Son of Man thing mean? What does that Son of Man thing mean? What? The 
That's what everybody thinks. It's the humanity of Christ. But there are certain key passages where Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, and he's referring to what? What? But, well, the kingdom, but what, how, what event that's upcoming is he referring to when he calls himself the Son of Man? His crucifixion. There are some of you standing here, he's saying to them, who will not taste death until you see the one who is to be crucified coming in his kingdom. And the reason why it's important to see that is because Luke adds a little detail to this story. Luke adds a little detail, okay? And the detail that Luke adds, and I won't ask anyone to read this. Okay, where are we? Come on. Come out, come out, wherever you are. Luke's transfiguration. I know I'm in the wrong place. Okay, wait a minute. Yes, thank you. All right, the verse I really want to see. And there was uh, was verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Okay, they're up there on the mountain. Anybody care to guess what that word is in Greek, departure? Not death. Oh, here it is. No, I got it. The word his exodus. They were talking with him about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, what is important about that word exodus in the context of Judaism? What is, yeah? A deliverance from slavery? Well, not a delivering from slavery, but the delivering from slavery. Okay? It is the master story of Judaism to this day. Almost all Jewish festivals are said to be, in the Hebrew term, Zecher Litziat Mitzrayim, a memorial of the exodus from Egypt. This is the single most important event in Jewish history. It's the one around which the whole calendar the whole spirituality, the whole self-image of Judaism, everything is built on this idea of remembering the Exodus and the story of the Exodus. So what does it mean 
that Moses and Elijah are talking to him about his exodus. Ah, there's going to be another one. And what's the relationship between the two, between the old exodus and this new exodus? Well, yeah, deliverance from slavery. Which of the two is really going to be the one that we need to remember? The second one. In other words, the first exodus was like what? A dress rehearsal, a shadow or type. So what was it pointing to? The second exodus, the exodus that Christ was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And what was, how did he accomplish that exodus at Jerusalem? Through his death and resurrection. Okay, and this fulfills the meaning. Now, this is vastly important to understand it through Jewish eyes to understand just how radical this was. Because you're taking the central metaphor, the master story of Judaism, and what you're saying is that was just the dress rehearsal. This is the real thing, this is what it points to. Now, Peter, and I love again, Luke says, Peter didn't know what he was saying. What's his reaction to this vision? What does he want to do? Build three tabernacles, three booths, three tents. Okay, so why does he want to do this? That's right, he wants to hang out there. But what is he, why three? One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. What is that making Jesus' status relative to Moses and Elijah? What? Equal. Okay. What does Moses represent? The, well, how would, you, how would a Jew put what Moses represents? What? The Torah. What does Elijah represent? The prophets. These are our sacred scriptures. So what are Moses and Elijah actually doing by appearing in glory with Jesus and talking to him about his exodus? Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And they're also saying, what about the Torah and the prophets? They point to him. And how do you know from this story that that's really their role? How does the story end that we just read that takes place on that mountain? What? Ah, Jesus is alone. What's happened to Moses and Elijah? What? They faded away? In other words, they did their job. They've done their job. What was their job? To point to Jesus. To point to Jesus. Now, 
I honestly have to tell you, as a convert to Christianity from Judaism, this is the, probably one of the biggest, if not the very biggest bone of contention between Judaism and Christianity. Because what Jews will say is, you are distorting the meaning of the Hebrew scriptures by interpreting them Christologically. Well, I hate to tell you, but from a Christian perspective, said, yeah, we're interpreting them Christologically. We can't do anything else. We have to do it because of the surpassing importance of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Just as the exodus from Egypt is the master story of Judaism, you have to understand that story to understand Judaism. So, the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that's the master story for us. And this is what's being revealed in large extent on that mountain. Okay? Now, there's a lot more that could be said. I could wax on, but I did want to leave John at least a little time to do his part of our dog and pony show. Volunteer to handle the mic. Let's try to move this if I could. Dan, just for a minute. Now, you can see why Zeb said it would take a long time to unpack that text. We could have gone way deeper. So keep studying it. What I want you to do now is turn over to 2 Peter, chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse. Uh, Okay, ready? Uh, do you have any questions about anything that Zev said before we move on? Because what I'm going to teach you is going to take seven minutes. Yes. What was my question? Uh, you're like Peter. You don't know what you're talking no, about. No, no, no. What did I say to the Jews? Peter didn't know what he was saying up on the mountain. Did the Jews believe in... Oh, did, did, the, did the Jewish people believe that Christ resurrected? <laughs> uh, well, uh, are you asking uh, him or are you asking me? Well, it is God. Okay. <laughs> um, no. Mm-hmm. Well, every Jew that does believe that, and you're staring at one, becomes a believer in Jesus. So that's the, you know, when you say, do Jews believe that, you have to qualify. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you know, that's what Paul says in Romans, that makes you a Christian. Okay? And... Yeah, I've confessed with my lips that Jesus is Lord, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, but as far as the Jewish community is concerned, that means I'm no longer a Jew. And that's important to understand. Because I've become an apostate. Yeah. 
Ah. Oh, my. Um, well, we were talking last week about fishing. Hey, you fishing. know what? Why don't you save that for Antioch? Yeah, yeah, we'll save that we'll for save Antioch. That for, we'll save that okay. for the end because that's so okay. huge. Because basically, you know, we were talking last week about fishing. You know, what's one of the things you sometimes take with you when you want to go fishing? A can of worms. <laughs> and that's what you wanted to open there. Oh, gosh. <laughs> All right, ready? Now, this is where this whole huge uh, historical and, uh, yeah, historical stuff comes home right to us if we believe in Jesus. Look at verse 16 of 2 Peter 1. I'm going to read it quick to make, to save the time. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Anybody know what he's talking about? We have not followed cunningly devised fable when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him, where? What's he doing? He's jumping now from this event that Seb just talked about. The, like, the, he took the master story of the Jewish faith and said, now it's going to be about Jesus. And Peter goes over here 30 years later, and he's ruminating on it. Does this remind you of what we did last week? Or two weeks ago? What did we do? We studied when he got called rock, and then what did we do? We jumped over to his writings, and we found out what Peter said about that event. Here's the event. Here's Peter's rumination on it 30 years later. So what does he say? We didn't, we didn't make this stuff up. We were actually there, and what? We saw it. We saw the majesty of God. We saw the glory of God. We saw Jesus transfigured. Okay, now, this is where it gets pertinent. 19. Now, I want some of you to read. I'll read the first part. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. We have also a more sure word. This is a comparative statement. We have... You want me to read the rest? No. Oh. Just that. Oh, so we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. More... It's a com he's making a comparative s statement. He's comparing one thing to another. You have a... And we have the prophetic word made more sure. Made more sure, made confirmed, made more certain. Compared to what? But he's comparing the prophetic word, which happens to be what? Whoop. Right? Moses. What did Zeb just teach you? Law, prophets. We have the prophetic word which is more confirmed or made more sure compared to what? Moses and Elijah. Compared to his experience back here. He's telling you, look, now if I asked you, I do this all the time with people, and I'm being serious, in that room is the Lord Jesus Christ shining in his glory. How many of you would like to go in there or do what Peter says in the rest of the verse? Because he is making a comparative statement. He is saying, 
our experience, as glorious as it was, is actually not as good as something else. What is that other thing that it's better than our experience? Now nah, we're getting warm, Christ living in us. What did he just say? We have the prophetic word made more sure. This that pointed to Jesus for 1,500 years is the objective anchor that points us to Christ and avoids us from falling into pure experientialism. Do you understand that? Anybody could go to a mountain and say, hey, I saw the Lord Jesus Christ last night. Uh, a famous American evangelism, evangelist uh, told the American people one time that G Jesus appeared to him. He was 50 feet t tall in his backyard. He must have a big backyard. What are you going to say to that? Jesus appeared to me and said X, Y, Z. What are you going to say? Yeah, right. Well, you could say, yeah, right, but if you said that to Peter, you'd be like destroying the Christian faith. So what does he do for us? He doesn't just say, look, believe because we were there and saw it. What does he say? You have access to the very same literature that we did, and it is now made more confirmed and more strong now that we've had this experience. And so now go on with the rest of the verse. What does he tell us to do? If you believe that happened to Peter, then follow his advice. What does he say to do? Who's reading? You will do well to pay attention to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Look, the scriptures, the prophetic scriptures, read and understood correctly, Christologically, as I've just said, when they point us to Jesus, there being a lamp unto us, and what they do is they reinforce the Jesus experience like he had. Now, what do we all want to do? Go to the mountain and have it for ourselves. Is that likely to happen? Maybe for some of you. But what does Peter say to the holistic body of Christ? What can you learn from this event in my life? Don't just believe because we told you. Go to the prophetic scriptures. Listen and learn and look for Jesus. And you should do this. And as you do it, the implication is what? You're going to have your own personal what? Transfiguration. Jesus will give you your transfiguration, your experience through the prophetic scriptures anchored there. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? He's saying this is better. I know we would all want to have that experience. I would. And I've been complaining to God about it for 40 <laughs> some odd years. I want to see you. No, study the Bible. You'll see me in, in spirit. Yes, Thank you, Dr. Smith. That's yes. See, that's what I'm trying to get at. We all want to have these temporal, visual, concretized experiences, cool as they may be. The Bible says that there's something far better. It's the living Christ inside of us transfiguring us as he's being transfigured. I got one minute. What's the next verse? He says, you should do this. Keep following the prophetic scripture as they point you to Jesus until when? This is cool. This is beautiful. Until the, okay, we have a contemporized translation. Until the day dawn the and the morning star 
rises in your hearts. Who's the morning star? Jesus, what's the morning star? That's Venus. Actually, in Greek, he calls it um, uh, so pho- phosphorus. So phosphorus. What's phosphorus? That's what they call Venus, phosphorus. Why? You can see it. It's the last one and the first one in the sky. So he says, look, we had this experience. We confirmed it in the scriptures. We're telling you, drill into the scriptures. As we teach you, you will have the same kind of experience. And this will go on and on in increasing transfiguration until that day dawns. Oops. When Venus, Revelation 22, 60, 16, I am the bright and morning star. That's Jesus. I am the bright and morning star. Venus is Jesus. He's going to arise inside of us, and then you won't have to read the Bible anymore. Zeb and I will retire. When's this going to happen? When will Venus arise within you? When? Next age. The next age. That's the fullness, the full experience. You think Peter got his mind blown? Wait until Venus arises within us in the next age. Then we will only see him. Okay? Thank you for coming. God bless you. See you next week. Take care.